Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Well, hey, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Long Hill Chapel, and we are going to circle back. Now that Easter is through, now that we're solidly into spring, we're going to circle back and we're going to pick up the last message from the series we were in, which is called Rebuilding. And it's a study through the book of Nehemiah. And today we're going to kind of land the plane and close that series out. Uh, But it's an important way for us to end. And so that's why I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss it. Rebuilding was really simply about this. It was a series that was trying to ask and answer the question for us, how do we keep going when it feels like the odds have been stacked against us? And for many of us, in many different ways over the past months, uh, we have felt that. But we discovered that the ancient people who were living in the time when this book of Nehemiah, which is really a memoir, it was a story of a man who had interacted at a specific point in history. We discovered those people felt the same way, too. You know, I grew up in upstate New York, and I'm fond of sharing that, and many of you who have uh, followed Long Hill, or you've been online, or you've been with us in the room, you know that I share stories of my childhood from growing up. And one of the things that is unique about where I grew up in upstate New York is there is an incredible amount of snow. Like those places that you see on the Weather Channel where there's just like snow above the doors, that's where I grew up. Very often my town is featured uh, in in those stories. And so we grew up very accustomed to snow, And one of the things that I always do, and I still do it, is I know how to drive in the snow pretty well because of my growing up experience. And so when it snows here, where we are in New Jersey, I always laugh at everybody else, and I chuckle at their attempts to uh, slide around and get places. And this winter, as you know, uh, we here in New Jersey have had a tremendous amount of snow for us. It was like a real winter for one of the first times in recent history. And it was after one of the big storms. And I live on a property that's set back from the road about 85 or 90. Feet. And so we have a very long driveway. And I was busy trying to back my car out of the driveway. And I have a four-wheel drive SUV like so many of you do. And so I was absolutely confident. I was taking my oldest son to go sledding. We were very excited about it. Everyone was in the car. And so I just started backing up. And some of the snow was still on the driveway. So it was a little bit hard to see where the driveway was. And this is one of my most embarrassing stories, so I'm coming 100% clean to you. I backed up and I backed up and I started to get a little off course and I got a little more off course and I wasn't really paying attention the way that I should. I was talking to my son and I was looking around and I ended up backing off the driveway into the ditch with my SUV kind of teetering back and forth on the Belgian blocks on the edge of our driveway with one wheel in the ditch and one wheel on the driveway. And it was an incredibly embarrassing moment for someone who grew up in upstate New York and claimed to know how to drive in the snow. I had to call a good friend with a four-wheel drive pickup truck, and he had to come literally yank my SUV off of these stones that it had high-centered itself on. It was an incredibly embarrassing moment. And you know what happened 
was simply this, is I started to get a little bit off course, but as speed picked up, I was going too fast down the driveway. I got more and more off course. I was a little distracted because I was trying to pay attention to my son and talk to him. And before I know it, I found myself in the ditch. I didn't intend to start there. I didn't intend to end up there, but that's where I found myself. And it's all because of a principle that is true in backing out of driveways on snowy days. But it's true in our life, and it's also true in our faith. It's the principle of drift. And today, as we close out Nehemiah, I want to look at an important lesson that we learn from the last stories that close out this book. And it's something that was important then, but it's as important for us now, not only as we live our lives, but as we live out our lives of faith. And so today, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 13. And I'm going to read the whole passage all the way through so you can kind of see the entire context of what's going on. It's a little bit of a long passage. Hang with me. And then we'll explore maybe what God might be speaking to each of us and to us together as we journey through this passage. So Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call down a curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all of this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I heard about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zechor, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services." In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. 
People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing? So now that our God has brought all this calamity on us and on our city, now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember for me this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw the men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke in the language of, of, of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at the designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. And with that, Nehemiah chapter 13 and the book of Nehemiah ends. I want you to notice a few things in this chapter. Once you've heard some names and places and situations without a lot of context, it's easy to kind of get lost in it. But we have to look back to where we've been. If you followed with our rebuilding series at all, you know that we've been kind of going through the entire book uh, chapter by chapter. And this chapter starts out as a continuation of the previous section of the book, which is this time of celebration of incredible spiritual renewal. Because what had happened is the book starts out with the wall broken down, and the wall was a symbol of the state of the hearts of the nation and the hearts of the people. And so the people were broken down, and Nehemiah shows up, and he begins to rebuild the wall. And he experiences opposition, first of all, from the outside, from some local warlords who had kind of moved into the power vacuum that had, had occurred because of the broken down station and nature of the wall and its people. And one of the names, two of the names that we discover throughout this passage, but especially in the beginning, should ring a bell for us. It's a person named Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah, if we go back a few chapters, he was one of the original warlords who was in opposition to the rebuilding 
of the wall. And we discover now that he has made a home in the temple. He's renting a room literally in the temple in the house of God. Because what's happened is there's been this tremendous time of spiritual renewal, and sometime in the middle of it, Nehemiah goes back into the service of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, from whence he came. So he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes back to Babylon. He goes back to Persia, and he goes back to his old job. And in the midst of that, some stuff begins to happen. Ten or twelve years pass, and then Nehemiah returns. And suddenly things are very different than the way that they were left. Because what happens when we have a season of spiritual renewal, it was true for the people then, it's true for you and I now, is there's some things that change in our life. There's some things that are moved out. There's some practices that we stop and there's some new things we start. There's some people we don't hang out with anymore and there's some new people we associate ourselves with. We pick up some new disciplines. We let go of some old habits. We repent of some sins and we begin to follow in the direction of God. But one of the things I've discovered, and maybe you've discovered this too, is even when that happens, those old things don't disappear completely. They just wait. And at some point, they even start to look okay. And maybe they even start to look good. Here's the thing that's crazy with Tobiah. Tobiah is an Ammonite, but he has a Jewish name. The word Tobiah literally means God is good. And even the priest falls for this. Even the priest says, you know, yeah, you, you, you opposed us in building the wall, but why, not, why don't come in and rent a room literally in the center of our identity and the center of our faith? And there are things, there are people that will rent rooms in God's house and they might sound good. They might even sound godly, but they have nothing to do with God. And they do what Tobiah did. Remember, this room that he rented was literally used to store the articles and some of the supplies and the provisions for the priests and the Levites and for the worship and for the service. And so what happens is Tobiah comes in and he literally displaces the worship of God. And the same thing happens so often to us. But that's not all that's going on. Because we discover as we continue reading that the people have stopped supporting the temple and the Levites. They've stopped giving offerings. The Levites have had to go back to their fields and basically pick up a second job to make ends meet. And it's a snowball effect. So they stop doing their duties. The Sabbath is not being observed. There's buying and there's selling. There's all sorts of activities that were never supposed to happen on the Sabbath day that are happening. There's intermarriage to the, the peoples and the, the, what, the women and the men around who are not of the Jewish faith and of the Jewish nation. And things have just gotten loose. It's the use of finances. It's the use of time. And it's how things are going in their families. And here's the thing that matters the most, is when you look at this list of things, and you go back a few chapters into Nehemiah chapter 10 and some of the surrounding text, you discover that these people are doing literally the exact opposite of all of the things they committed to do back in Nehemiah 10. 
because there was this time of spiritual renewal when the people of God said, we're not going to do those things anymore. We're going to go in a different direction. We are making a commitment. We literally are signing our names. So much of some of the chapters of Nehemiah are a list of names that are people who are putting their names to what they're going to do. And here at the end of the book, with a little bit of time and with Nehemiah's absence, we discover that things have gone back very much to the way that they used to be. Today, I'm going to teach you a physics lesson. And some of you, this just brought up your worst nightmare ever. You remember high school or college physics. Don't worry, it's not going to be that bad. There's this principle. It's a natural law. It's a law of physics called the second law of thermodynamics. And I've kind of come up with a, a street-friendly definition for it. If you're a true physicist or a true scientist or an engineer, you're going to hate this definition. But this is so the rest of us can understand this a little better. It goes like this. The state of entropy in a closed system will always increase over time to the maximum limits of the system unless acted upon by an outside force. That sounds almost like a foreign language to some of you. But basically, here's what it means. It means that things will always go from a state of order to chaos. Things will always start out organized and they will become disorganized. Things will always start out put together and over time things will start to fall apart. You know this is true in life. If I get a bucket of marbles and I dump it on the ground, those marbles roll as far as possible away from where they were. You know, if you have a hot mug of coffee, you know the heat is in the mug, but over time the heat dissipates to the outside air until the mug is literally the same temperature as the environment around it. If you have kids, you absolutely know this is true. You know that the mess that is your son or your daughter's room will expand to the limits that you give it. It'll expand to the very corners of their room. Your garage might be this way. You might have that drawer in your kitchen that's that way. And you can kind of see where I'm going with this, that things tend to move from order, from integration to disintegration, from order to chaos. And you can see that the same is true with this in our spiritual lives as well. The things that you and I commit to in one season can very easily, just like these ancient people in Nehemiah, be the things that we climb down from in the next. Our natural direction is not towards God, it's away from God. Out to wherever the limits are that we give that. And here's the tricky part, folks. This isn't because we have bad intentions. This isn't because we want this to happen. This isn't because we haven't prayed enough. This isn't because our lack of desire or commitment. We see in Nehemiah that there's absolute commitment, desire. The people want this, but after a short time, they are going in the opposite direction. The reason this is happening is this is because how things work in our natural world. That's why this law, this law of thermodynamics is such a key thing for us to understand. Because when it comes to a natural law, when it comes to how the world works, it's like gravity. You can't outsmart it. You can't outpray it. You can't wish and hope for the best. You can't outthink it. Your intentions don't matter. It is what it is. All you can do is set a way to stay on course with it. That's how natural laws work. And so at the end of the day, 
our intentions for our spiritual lives. They matter. They, they point us in the direction, but they're not the thing that keeps us going in that direction. It's literally the things, the boundaries, the obstacle, the course that we make that keeps us going in the direction. So how do we counteract something like that? You know it's true in your life. You know it's true with your kids. You know it's true with your garage. You know it's true with so many other things in your life, and it's also true in your spiritual life, and we see it in Nehemiah. The thing that keeps this from happening is when there's an outside force that comes into play. You know, I don't think we very easily keep ourselves from drift. Here's why. Drift seems like a passive thing. You know, I didn't mean to drive off my driveway into the ditch in the snowstorm. It's something that happened to me. But even when we don't choose to do it, when we don't make the decision to do it, it has its own consequences. Because in not choosing to do something else, we in effect make our own choice. It's something like this. Not doing something is doing something. Not saying something is saying something. And not acting on something is acting on something. Let me give you some examples of what this looks like uh, in our lives that we can understand. You know, if you go to an amusement park, if we still do that anymore, and you wait in line for a ride, you know there's a time when the ride leaves. And your intention to get on the ride can be the best, it can be the most. You can want that more than anything, but unless you're in line at the right time, you'll miss the ride. You have to do something that allows you to get on the ride in the time that's allowed. You have to take the opportunity when it's in front of you. You know, if you go to the airport, I don't know if you're one of those people who goes to the airport like three hours earlier, you get there on the nick of time. When you don't make a decision to do one thing, you're actually making a decision to do something else. You know, right now, it's tax season. And this year, our tax season has been extended for about another month to May 17th. But some of you, you did this back in January. Some of you, you're those people who the night before, you're up till 2 in the morning, you're getting it done. And what we do is when we don't make a decision to do one thing, we actually have bought ourselves into a decision for something else already. You know, we see this in Nehemiah, and it's true in our lives as well. Your small, consistent patterns, the decisions that you make that you don't know that you're making, the decisions that you make that, that you are not aware of by not actively making a different decision are the things that determine who and what you become in the long run. And we learn in the story that what seems like the high point can actually be the most critical moment. Because when you're at the high point of your spiritual life, when you're at the high point of spiritual renewal, when it looks like things are going great, we look around and we believe subtly that nothing could ever cause this to go off course. Just like because of my experience driving in the snow for so many years, I subtly believe there was no way I would drive myself into a ditch. And in that moment, we stop paying attention. And when we stop paying attention, we are actually making a choice. And things can begin to unravel. So as we come to the close of this series, I want us to ask and answer a question honestly. How do we avoid drift in our lives?
not just in our lives. How do we avoid drift in our spiritual lives? When we have the best of intentions, when we pray, when we hope, when we wish, when we make a commitment, when we do all of the same things that the ancient people did, we commit that we're not going to do it the other way, but in a short time, we find ourselves back there again. How do we avoid that from happening? And it comes back to that thing we talked about a little bit before, an outside force. You know in your life that things move from order to chaos, from integration to disintegration, from organized to disorganized, unless you act on those things with an outside force. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 13. We see that Nehemiah actually is the outside force. He comes back into the picture and he begins to set things right again. And in all of that that happens, we begin to understand how it's possible for us to do that for ourselves. Here's the thing when it comes to drift. It is very hard for us to see it until it's much too late, until it's moved much too far. And so we need to set some practices in place that alert us to its presence before it becomes something that cannot be corrected from easily. And so the first principle that I, I think we see here is this, constantly pay attention. Things got way off course when nobody was paying attention anymore in that ancient group of Jewish people. When Nehemiah, kind of the gatekeeper, the one who had brought things back, he was no longer there. Nobody was keeping watch on what was going on. And things started out small. They started out slowly, but over time they grew and it began to snowball. So how do you pay attention? Because it's so easy for us to be distracted, just like I was backing out of my driveway. It's so easy for us to do that. One of the things we do is we create obstacles in our life that force us to pay attention. You know, when you're driving down the highway, you know this now that on either side, uh, there's some objects, there's some things that have been placed there for a reason. The first thing is right outside of the outside lane line, there's a rumble strip. And so if you start to swerve off the road, you hit that rumble strip and it jolts you back to reality. Maybe you've been one of those people, you've dozed off a little bit at night and you hit the rumble strip and you're so thankful that you did because it alerts you, it jolts you, it gets your attention. It's a little bit jarring, but it does it before something worse happens. The next thing that's on that outside line is a guardrail. And so if you hit the rumble strip and that doesn't get your attention, you run into the guardrail. And the guardrail will literally damage your car, but the guardrail will also keep something worse than that from happening to you. It'll keep you from going off the embankment and down into the ditch. It'll keep your car from rolling over. So there's a little bit of pain involved, but the pain is the thing that gets your attention. It startles you, but it keeps you from something that's far worse. And so the way that we can constantly remind ourselves to pay attention is to put practices in our lives, to put things in our lives that act like rumble strips. You can do this in your finances. You can do this in your relationships. And these aren't feelings, these are practices. These are things that you decide that when there's a line that you've crossed before, it's really dangerous. It's something that will get your attention. And you can even do these in your spiritual life. 
you can put some guardrails in place that say, you know, I'm not just not even going to go there. It's not that it's wrong to go there, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to have this kind of conversation. I'm not going to end up in that place. I'm not going to allow myself to become isolated. When I start to see these things, these rumble strips, these guardrails, they are things that alert me and get my attention back before things are too late. You know, when I was backing out of that driveway, I wish that something had gotten my attention when I was just a little bit off course. I wish I'd felt it. I wish I'd seen it. But because I was distracted, because it was hard to see the path, and because I was going too fast, it was hard for me to do that. Another way that we can increase our attention, get this, folks, is to slow down. You know that you're able to take in a lot more detail when you're moving slower than when you're moving very, very quickly. And sometimes what we need to do in our lives, sometimes what we need to do in our relationships, sometimes what we need to do with our decision-making, sometimes what we need to do with our faith, with our spiritual lives, is we need to slow it down. So things aren't coming at us quite too quickly that we cannot understand, we cannot process, we cannot discern, we cannot work through. And if you do that, you're able to pay attention much better and much more easily. So constantly pay attention. The second idea is this, and this is something we see that Nehemiah does. Take immediate action when you discover drift. Take immediate action, don't wait. Make sure you're not overreacting or reacting improperly, but be decisive in how you react and respond. Do it in the right way, but do it strong and immediately. And the reason for this is it allows us to get back on course before things get too far off course. You know that if you've ever kind of wandered over onto one of those rumble strips on the highway, you immediately turn the wheel and you get back in the lane. The same is true with drift. Once you discover it, take immediate action. We see Nehemiah do this. He comes in, and some of the things he does seem almost harsh to us as we read them. But we know that Nehemiah has an outside force in his life. He knows he's accountable to God. We see it in the very last part of the book. He says, God, I took action because I know that this matters to you, and I know that I'm accountable to you. Be really bothered by it to the point that it motivates you into action. But don't wait. So constantly pay attention. Take immediate action whenever you discover drift. And lastly, and I think this is so key for all of us, have a Nehemiah in your life. You know, we see this in the story. We see this in the lives of these ancient Jewish people. There in the state that there are, Nehemiah arrives on the scene and things begin to change and everything changes. The wall gets rebuilt. The people are recommitted. They have this incredible time of spiritual renewal and then Nehemiah leaves again and things get off course a little bit again. And then Nehemiah comes back and he begins to bring things back. We all need someone in our lives who is an influencing factor in the direction that we go. Someone who has the right value, someone who is following hard after God, a trusted someone who will also see us and speak truth when we need to hear it. This is true in every area of our lives, but it is so true in our spiritual lives. If you have a Nehemiah in your life, when you get distracted, when you start to drift a little bit, when there's so much going on, when you're tired out, 
when you're not feeling it. They're the person who can help define what is true, what is real, and where the line is for you and bring you back onto course before you drift too far. And so have someone like that in your life. You know, one of the things here at Long Hill Chapel that I love is that we believe so much that we're not here to do life and to do this Christian journey alone. We're here together. And you're part of a group of people who wants that for you. And we want this for us and we want this for each other. They'll live a life that reflects the glory, the hope, and the legacy of God. A story that's worth it, a journey that's worth going on, but a life that does not drift. And that's how we keep going when the odds of life, even the odds in our world, seem like they're stacked against us. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the truth of your word that speaks from this ancient place into our lives and into our hearts and into the very circumstances and places that we find ourselves even in this moment. I pray for those of us today who are struggling with drift. There's some area of our lives where we have wandered off. Maybe we feel like we're hanging over the edge of a ditch. Maybe we just uh, feel things are off course a little bit. I pray that you would make it very clear for us how we're to apply what we've heard, to realize that drift isn't something we can pray away. It's not something we can wish away. It's not something our best intentions or even our best commitments help us avoid. It's a natural occurrence because it's how life works and it's even how our spiritual lives naturally will go unless an outside force acts. Help us pay attention. Help us if there's an area you've brought to mind by the power of your spirit to take immediate action, not to react wrongly or to overreact, but not to sit on it, not to wait, to move into action and to make a course correction. And for those of us who are isolated right now, I pray that you bring a Nehemiah into our lives. And if we need to open ourselves up to that, if we need to get on that journey with somebody, maybe even if we need to get on that journey here with Long Hill, that you'd help us do it. We thank you that you are always working, that you're always on the journey with us, that you never leave us alone, and that you have the best for us as we continue to walk for you. Thank you, Lord, for this time and for our time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.